I want to speak to you this evening on the concept of heaven in the Old Testament. We are moving tonight to message two in the series, Heaven is Our Eternal Home. And I do want to read Psalm 16 here in just a moment. Uh, But before I do that, I want us to do a little bit of recap of where we've started from in this series. And uh, I want to share a quote with you from uh, Pastor David Jeremiah. He said, what comes to mind when you think of heaven? Heaven is referred to in 54 of the Bible's 66 books. And the final two chapters of the Bible are a virtual travelogue of our heavenly home. To visualize heaven accurately, you need to study the Bible continually. And then Billy Graham said, remember, the Bible is our only authoritative source of information about heaven. So we know what we know because of what God has revealed to us in his word. There are more than 500 references in one form or the other to heaven in the Bible. It is a subject that is prominent, a theme that is evident really from the beginning to the end. And there's a lot of uncertainty and confusion about the afterlife, and there's a lot of fear about death, and there's a lot of trepidation. A lot of people uh, want to live as long as they possibly can because they don't have any confidence about what's to come in the next life. And while we're blessed with however long the Lord gives us on this earth, we know that we are just passing through. And in this series, we are looking to the Bible for our understanding on these matters And my prayer is that our confidence and faith in God will grow as we cover these subjects. We looked last week at eternity past and the heavens from Genesis chapter 1 in the first two verses. And we answered the question, what was God doing before creation? We're not given details, but what we know clearly is that God was active, all-knowing, and in perfect community, love, and glory as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Or to state it another way, before creation, God dwelt joyfully in eternity as the triune God. Everything else beyond that lies in a mystery. We also asked and answered the question, what are the three heavens? And I gave you the reference in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We focused on how the first Heaven is the atmosphere of the earth and the sky. The second heaven is what we would commonly refer to as outer space and the expanse of it. And then the third heaven is the presence of God around the throne of glory. And that takes me to the next question that we asked and answered. Where does God rule from? God rules from his throne in heaven. The Bible mentions the throne of God or God's throne several times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. A throne is a seat of a king, and I believe that the throne that is referenced in the Scripture is actually a literal throne room, a place where authority and power, glory and majesty, holiness and justice, grace and eternal life flow from. A biblical theology of heaven provides a foundation for living so that we don't have to be afraid of dying and what lies beyond this world because our faith is in God and we trust him fully. We're not hanging on as people who have no hope. We are living life to the fullest in the here and now, recognizing that we are pilgrims passing through on our way to the heavenly city. Psalm 16, beginning in verse 1, protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. 
I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. As for the holy people who are in the land, they're the noble ones. All my delight is in them. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. And then he says this in verse 5. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who counsels me even at night when my thoughts trouble me. I always let the Lord guide me because he's at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Uh, My body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. And then listen to verse 11. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Now I want to look at several subjects tonight that come from the Old Testament. Uh, My thought is to basically lay the foundation of some of the things that we see progressively revealed in the Old Testament that ultimately come into a more crystal clear focus, especially as we come to the end of the Bible and the passage of Scripture that we typically think about heaven proper. And I want to begin in this particular study with a focus on Sheol in the Old Testament. I want us to think just for a moment about Sheol in the Old Testament. It's referenced here in Psalm 16. Sheol in the Old Testament uh, basically means the place of the dead. It refers to the place of departed souls or spirits. It is also referenced as the grave or the abode of the dead. From a New Testament equivalent, uh, Sheol is equivalent to Hades, which is also a more general reference to the place of the dead. And again, depending on the translation of the word, it's referred to as the grave, the pit, or even hell in some translations. Psalm 88 says, Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out before you day and night. May my prayer reach your presence. Listen to my cry, for I've had enough troubles and my life is near Sheol. Now, some believed that everyone went to one place initially, including both the righteous and the wicked. And they drew that from verses like Ecclesiastes chapter 9 in verse 2 and 3. Now, I'm going to move fairly quickly tonight. I'm going to give you a lot of scripture references just for the sake of time. We're not going to turn there, but I would ask you to make a note of it if you'd like to go back and study it a little bit more in depth. And in Ecclesiastes 9 in verse 2 and 3, the scripture says, all share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so are those who are afraid to take them. The same destiny overtakes all. So the thinking was, when focusing in on just a couple of verses like that, was that Sheol was in the lower parts of the earth, and the common thinking was that it was uh, entered by crossing a river. The descriptions are rather stark. A place of no light, no remembrance, no praise of God, no sound at all. Sheol is pictured as a city with gates, but a place of ruins and a place of dust. 
But the one thing that we notice in the Scripture, and this is a good uh, hermeneutical principle to apply at any time as we study the Scripture, is that there is progressive revelation, meaning that there are often things that are mentioned early in the Scripture that are not fully explained, but yet uh, other Scripture passages shine light on them, and then when we put it all together, we have a fuller understanding of what the whole picture is so that we can have a better concept of whatever the subject is. And I think that's true here. The Old Testament affirms that God is everywhere. In fact, in Psalm 139 and verse 8, it says, If I go up to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So God has power over this concept of Sheol and is capable of ransoming souls from its depth. And as we read here in Psalm 16 and verse 10, for you will not abandon me to Sheol, you will not allow your faithful one to see decay. So God revealed in the scripture that there will in fact be a resurrection of the dead. The faithful will be rewarded with everlasting life by the grace of God and those who have rejected God will be separated from him. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 25 and verse 8. It says, when he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 26 and verse 19 says, your dead will live, their bodies will rise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For you will be covered with the morning dew, and the earth will bring out the departed spirits. So the Old Testament taught life after death, and that anyone who departed from this life went to a place of conscious existence. The general term being Sheol, with one aspect of it being the abode of the righteous, and one aspect of it being the abode of the wicked. Now, I've already referenced that in the New Testament, the equivalent is Hades. We're going to get to this eventually and look at it more in depth. But in Luke chapter 16, we learn that prior to the resurrection of Christ, Hades was said to have had two realms, a place of comfort where Lazarus was and a place of torment where the rich man was. Paradise and hell are used And in between them, there is a great chasm that is fixed that no one could cross once their fate was sealed. Once they had decided what they were going to do, either believing in God or rejecting God, their fate was sealed. So let's fast forward this to the present day and what our current understanding would be of what happens to a person who dies and enters in to the next life. Today, when an unbeliever dies... He goes to the place of suffering. Now, it is not yet the final hell. We'll get to this also in the New Testament because the devil will be the first inhabitant of the final hell, but rather the place of suffering, the place of torment, the place called Hades. Hades will be emptied at the great white throne judgment, and its occupants will be cast into the eternal lake of fire that is spoken of in Revelation 20 and verse 13 through 15, which would in fact be the final hell. That is the place that those who reject faith in God end up in the present day. Also today, when a believer dies, he or she goes into the presence of the Lord. 
Jesus referred to it when he spoke uh, to the thief on the cross who believed as paradise. Uh, It is accurate for us to speak of it as heaven, although there will also be a new heaven and a new earth, according to the Bible. Uh, Much more to come on that later as we move along as well. Uh, But today, it would be accurate for us to say that believers go to heaven, to the presence of God, absent from the body and present with the Lord, even though there will be a new heavens and a new earth that will be created by the power of God. And we'll cover that as we get to it a little bit further into this study. And it's also accurate to say, just as we did from Luke chapter 16, that all who have rejected faith in God, whose faith is not in the Lord Jesus Christ in this life currently, will go to the place of suffering, the place of separation from God. So that's the basic concept of Sheol in the Old Testament. And what I want you to understand from it is that the, the ultimate understanding of the details of it are the same as what we would understand today, but it was more general language used. And in that general language that was used, it was pointing us toward a more progressive revelation to the details that we now have. So let's move to the second part of the study this evening, and that is immortality in the Old Testament. Immortality in the Old Testament. Now, the Bible begins to teach in the Old Testament that death is not the end of existence. Or to state it another way, the soul of human beings will exist forever. Immortality means not subject to death. Now, it's very important to understand at this point that God alone inherently has immortality. This is a part of his nature because there was never a time when he was not and there will never be a time when he will not be. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 15 and 16 says he is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal power. So how could it be that a human being could have immortality? The only reason that we can have immortality is because God imparts immortality to us. So in in other words, our souls did not exist until the time that they came into being. Uh, Or to state it another way, there was a time when we were not, and then God called our lives, our souls, our bodies into being, and our lives began. And God alone is the one who can grant us that immortal existence. People are not immortal by nature. But believers have an eternal inheritance awaiting them. Proverbs 12 and verse 28 says, There is life in the path of righteousness, and in its path there is no death. So every human soul that has come into being will exist somewhere for all of eternity. Now, the key to our immortality being uh, existing in the presence of God is the eternal life that God gives to us through his son, Jesus Christ. So immortality and eternal life are not one in the same. 
both believers and unbelievers, once they're called into existence, are immortal in the sense that their soul will exist permanently. Only those who have eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ will exist eternally in the presence of God. Walter Kaiser wrote, accordingly, it can be argued on very strong linguistic and conceptual grounds that the taking of a person from this earth implies that mortals are capable of inhabiting immortal realms. For the believer in Yahweh in Old Testament times, death did not end at all. There was life after death, and that life was to be in the presence of the living God. And this is one of the reasons, including the fact that all human beings are created in the image of God and are inherently valuable because they've been created in the image of God, that we believe that life ought to be protected from its natural conception to its natural conclusion because there is a soul involved. And it's much more involved than what many people even realize. Let's use the example in the Old Testament of Enoch. You remember Enoch? He was the great, 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 great grandson of Adam. He was the father of Methuselah. The Bible says that he walked faithfully with God altogether 365 years. And according to Genesis 5, he was no more in an instant because God took him away. We're given a little more commentary into what happened to him in that instance in Hebrews 11 and verse 5, where it says, By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. So we have this example of this man who was walking with God. He was living his life. He was here for an extended period of time. Uh, after the fall of man and prior to uh, the uh, lifespans shortening and being even that much shorter, 70 years as the scripture references now and beyond that being uh, by the grace of God. And then all of a sudden he's not. Where did he go? Well, he went to be in the presence of God, the God who looked at him and saw his life as pleasing in his sight. Another example in the Old Testament is that of Elijah, the prophet of God through whom God worked great miracles. And in 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 11, it says, Suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, the two prophets, and Elijah went up into heaven in a whirlwind. Wouldn't it have been great to be there that day? That would have been a wow moment that God brought this man into his presence, again, a faithful servant of God who was taken in to the presence of God. But as we're going to see as we move along in this study, this is very similar to what happens when a believer draws their last breath on this earth and is ushered up into heaven. It's in an instant, and while the body remains, the soul goes immediately to be in the presence of God, absent from the body and present with the Lord. What a hope we have that while we have these Old Testament examples of Enoch and Elijah, we have the same hope in our lives that when our existence here is done, we have a far better existence awaiting us in the very presence of God. Uh, There's a passage of Scripture In Daniel chapter 12, it's prophetic in nature, but it gives us even more insight into this idea of immortality. 
Daniel chapter 12, it says at that time, uh, Michael, beginning in verse 1, the great prince who stands watch over your people will rise up, talking about a time in the future. And there will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. And those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens. Those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So this concept continually comes up in the Old Testament that there's something beyond this life. There's something beyond what we can see. There's something beyond what we can touch and what we can hold on to. There's another world, and that other world is governed by God himself. And he has power over all of the physical world which he's created, and he also has power over all of the spiritual world. I'm reminded of Asaph in Psalm 73, uh, where he told of how he had almost lost his faith in God. He's looking at how all the evil people were prospering, and he's thinking about all of the suffering in the world, and he's almost at a point of despair. And then he says that he went into the sanctuary of God. And listen to what he says in Psalm 73 and verse 24 and following. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me up into glory. Now let me just pause there for a moment. Asaph was saying, in this life, I'm guided by the counsel of God. How do I know what to do? Because God tells me. How do I know where to go? Because God tells me. How am I sustained along the way? Because God sustains me. What is my hope in the future? Well, I'm going to be taken up into glory. That's what my hope is in the future. So why am I sitting around in this life, wringing my hands, wrapped up in anxiety, afraid of tomorrow, when the truth of the scripture is, there's going to be a time, no matter what happens on this earth, that I'm going to be taken up into the presence of the Lord in glory. And then he says this, who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. So he gives us a little reality check. He said, look, your flesh and your heart, they may fail. I'll say it another way. If Jesus tarries his coming, your flesh and your heart will fail. But yet the hope is in the Lord. God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. And immortality is something that is basic to the nature of God. And then to all who believe God's promises, we are given immortality by him when we are brought into being. God had no beginning or end. Believers had a beginning, but will have no end in the presence of God. Immortality is the indefinite continuation of a person's experience even after death. And that leads me to the third segment, conscious life after death in the Old Testament. Conscious life after death in the Old Testament. So we've got to ask the question because this issue comes up from time to time. Is the soul conscious after death? Job chapter 14, verse 1 and 2, and then verse 14, 
asked this very question. Man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and withers away. Like a fleeting shower, he does not endure. And then here's the question that Job asked. If a man dies, will he live again? Well, as I've already noted, the Bible teaches that every human soul is born with an endless existence. At death, the soul is separated from the body, but the soul does not lapse into a state of unconsciousness, nor does the soul lapse into a state of sleep. The soul will retain unbroken consciousness into the presence of the Lord. Now, let me just pause here before I go any deeper into this. This has very real end-of-life application, if you will. A lot of times when we have loved ones who have suffered greatly, either because of a physical infirmity that they have had, or if they've gone through something like uh, Alzheimer's or dementia or some other uh, physical illness that has taken away Uh, their ability to remember, their ability to talk, their ability to interact, and everything that goes along with that. Sometimes we get so focused in on the body, and remember the mind, uh, the brain itself is part of that body, and we forget that even in its most broken down state, even in its most limited state, the soul of a human being that is inside of that body Uh, by the mystery of God, retains the essence and the completeness of all that it is. Meaning that even if our bodies are completely broken down, if they've completely failed us, the soul of that person that has been redeemed by God is fully intact, awaiting the time when the body will finally fail And that soul will go immediately to be in the presence of God. So that says to us who have opportunities at times, and some of you have given very good life examples and testimonies of this, to take care of people whose bodies have completely failed them. It reminds us that their soul is completely intact. And our care for them while they await their heavenly flight to be in the presence of God is incredibly important. And we don't know even how much their soul understands about what's going on or about the care that they're receiving or about the love that is expressed toward them. God knows. It's up to him ultimately. But what it says to us is that just as life should be valued from natural conception, it should also be valued all the way to natural conclusion. Because within that person is a soul that has been created in the image of of God. And I think that's a very important point uh, for us to understand. And I think even in terms of uh, the way people many times when their loved ones are, are preparing to depart and, and leave this life and go on to the next, maybe they're unconscious, uh, maybe they're in a state where they can't communicate or whatever, I think it's perfectly appropriate, if not even per- especially advisable, I would say it is, to communicate with that person, to express your love for that person, to talk to that person, to read scripture to that person, to pray for that person, because again, their soul is intact, awaiting their entrance into heaven. Now, uh, there is widespread false teaching of the sleep 
of the soul following death. Cults like Jehovah's Witnesses teach that at death, uh, the body returns to the dust and the soul becomes unconscious. And if you know your Bible, you might ask a question about a passage like Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 5. Because in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 5, it says, The dead know not anything. A dead body has no consciousness of anything past, present, or future. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 12 says, All go into one place, for all are of the dust, and all turned to dust again. And then verse 21 Who knows the spirit of man that goes upward? And then finally, Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7 says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. So I think what these passages of Scripture tell us, when we don't just pull one out in isolation, but we look at them all together, is that Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 5 is speaking primarily of the body. It's talking about the physical aspect of human beings. And the Bible uses the figure of speech of a dead person sleeping because there's never a pause in our consciousness. When we're asleep, our soul is still there. And since the soul never dies, then we believe that the dead are alive because their soul is alive. Dr. Harry Rimmer wrote, the phenomenon of sleep is peculiar to the flesh alone. The soul, the spirit, And the mentality, never sleep. And that's why we dream. In that great study that is called the psychology of dreams, it is conceded that all dreams are the result of past experience. The past experiences may be either mental or physical, but all dreams are predicated upon some past event. And when the body succumbs to the influence of sleep, the spirit or soul in which the resident consciousness of self goes off on the amazing thing that people call dreams. And there's a remarkable power of the subconscious mind even when the body is asleep. So let's think a little bit further in some examples from the Old Testament that are outside of just the line-by-line precepts. Moses, for example, was given insight into his death that was to come. In Deuteronomy 32 and verse 50, it said, Then you will die on the mountain that you go up, and you'll be gathered to your people, just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. There are three references in the Bible to the death and the burial of Moses. And each of them, in a sense, contributes to the mystery of the whole thing. Now, some of the facts are that he was 120 years old when he died, Yet the Bible says that his eyes were not weak, nor was his strength gone. Now, you remember because of the sin of disobedience at the waters of Meribah, he was not allowed to uh, enter into the promised land. He brought the people right up there on the precipice of the promised land. And then the Lord showed him the land, but Moses died there on the summit, according to the word of the Lord, and it was God who buried him. Now, in a sense, God presides over all departures from this life. Because it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. But this was like a literal presiding over the funeral of Moses. And it goes on to say in Deuteronomy 34 and verse 5, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. 
Now, why would God not let people know the place of Moses' burial? I think it was because his people were prone to idolatry. And he knew that if he let them know where Moses was buried, because they so revered this man and they so respected him, that there were going to be people who were going to make an idol out of that. Now, there's another mystery that comes into the uh, death and the burial of Moses, and we find it in Jude 1 and verse 9. Because we learn there that when Moses died, the archangel Michael contended with the devil over the body of Moses. The passing reference is not particularly expounded on by Jude, and it's been a source of debate uh, through the ages. We're not told exactly when this angelic argument occurred, although it was likely at the time of Moses' burial. Uh, We don't know why the the devil and Michael would be arguing over his body. Uh, Maybe uh, Satan was opposed to a concept of a future resurrection. Uh, Maybe he wanted to bury the body in a more accessible place so that the people would Uh, follow after it in idolatry, whatever the reason was in the dispute, Satan lost the battle. And uh, nobody still knows where Moses was buried. We later encounter Moses and Elijah. Now watch this, Old Testament saints who appear at the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew chapter 17. You remember the setting of the transfiguration? Uh, Peter, James, and John Uh, were taken by Jesus up onto the mountain to pray. And while praying, the appearance of the Lord uh, turned into a glorified appearance. Moses and Elijah were there with him. And they're talking with Jesus about his death that would soon take place. And in my mind, at least, I think Moses and Elijah serve, in a sense, for us as a bridge of understanding from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And the idea is that they came from a sphere of a conscious life to the presence of Jesus to converse with Jesus. This this is fascinating. You talk about being excited if you'd have been there when Elijah was carried up on a chariot of fire up into heaven. What would it have been like? We would have been like Peter, who was like, Lord, we, we just want to tabernacle here with you. We, let's just stay here. and Let's just bask in what it is that we've experienced. And it's phenomenal what they were able to see uh, there on the Mount of Transfiguration. But what it does is it takes us to a realm of a conscious life after death that is foreshadowed in the Old Testament that is then given some insight in the New Testament. Chuck Swindoll wrote in his book, Growing Deep in the Christian Life, that when the believer dies, the body goes into the grave. The soul and the spirit go immediately to be with the Lord Jesus, awaiting the body's resurrection, when they're joined together to be forever with the Lord in eternal bliss. So I say to you that this conscious intermediate state is not an intermediate cleansing place between heaven and earth. Or to state it another way, there is no such thing as purgatory. Purgatory is not found in the Bible. And furthermore, purgatory contradicts the gospel. In fact, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, purgatory, and I quote, is a place or condition of temporal punishment for those who, departing this life in God's grace, are not entirely free from venial faults, or have not fully paid the satisfaction due to their 
transgressions. To summarize it in Catholic theology, purgatory is a place that a Christian's soul goes after death to be cleansed of the sins that have not been fully satisfied during this life. So is the doctrine of purgatory in agreement with the Bible? And the answer is absolutely not. And not only is it not in keeping with what the Word of God says, but it is an altogether different gospel. Because what it says is that the nature of the sacrifice of Jesus was not sufficient for our sins, but rather those things that we committed, we have to be in some sort of holding pattern while those are taken care of before we can go into the presence of God. And that is an altogether different gospel that the Bible is very clear about we should have nothing to do with. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. And the only reason, my friend, that you will stand in the presence of God someday with confidence and boldness is because Christ died in your place. You will not stand there because of your religion. You will not stand there because of your good works. You will not stand there because of all the good things that you've done in your life because you were a good person or you were a religious person or you were a church person. All that stuff is rubbish. It's on the dung pile is what the Apostle Paul would say. The only reason that you will be there is because God sees you through the righteousness of Jesus Christ and because he has declared you righteous based on the finished work of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ and the propitiation that he made for our sins is altogether sufficient. And his death was sufficient for all of our sins. And we'll learn much more about the conscious life after death when we get to the New Testament. And now I come to the assurance of a resurrection in the Old Testament. The assurance of a resurrection in the Old Testament. Now think about this in in the progression. The whole Old Testament pointed to the time when the Lord would come, the promise of Messiah. Remember the promise of Messiah came early when the seed of the woman was promised that he would crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3 and verse 15. And then there's the promise that the dead would be raised, that the world would be judged in righteousness, and then the eternal kingdom would come. In the Old Testament, it's indicated that the Lord will return. Now, obviously, there are a multitude of prophecies about the first coming of Christ, about his suffering, about his return. Jesus' words referring to his return in Matthew 24 and also Mark chapter 13 actually are parallels of the descriptions that we find from the prophet Isaiah. But then listen to this passage in Zechariah 9 and verse 14 and 15. The scripture says, Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. And the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. So in the Old Testament, it's indicated that the Lord is going to come back. And we're not told when, but we're told that he's coming. And in the Old Testament, it's indicated that there will be a resurrection upon the return of the Lord. And I point you to Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says. I'm going to open your grace grave and bring you up to them, my people, and lead you into the land of Israel. You will know that I am the Lord, my people, when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, 
This is the declaration of the Lord. So what was Ezekiel saying? He's saying there's coming a time when people are going to come up, their bodies are, out of the graves. They're going to be filled with the Spirit, and he will place them in their own land. What's this a reference to? It's a reference to the resurrection of Old Testament believers. I believe now that Old Testament saints exist in the presence of God in some form of a temporal uh, spiritual body which remains the essence of who they are, just as we saw in Moses and Elijah in the transfiguration. And it's indicated in the Old Testament that the Lord is not only going to return, he's not only going to have a resurrection, but he's also going to be the judge. You understand there's a day coming when every person who is now living or who has ever lived or who will ever live in the future will appear before the throne of God. Every person. Nobody will escape it. It doesn't matter if people deny the Bible. It doesn't matter if they think the concept of God is the most foolish thing that there's ever been. It doesn't matter if they think they can do whatever they want to do and rewrite morality and say that things are right that aren't right. None of that matters because every human being has an appointment with God. God sets the appointment and God is the judge when we appear at that appointment. In Isaiah 33 and verse 22, it says, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. You know what that tells us? We can have confidence because will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the resounding answer is emphatically yes. He will always do what is right. And in the Old Testament, it's indicated that believers will experience the presence of God. Listen to what Psalm 17 and verse 15 says. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied beholding your likeness. Psalm 49 and verse 15 says, But God will ransom my soul from the power of death, for he will receive me. I think of Abraham, who at the call of God left his homeland and went to a new land. When he died, he was buried in the land he was promised, as was his wife, Sarah. Abraham, it said, was gathered to his people. He was gathered to his people in peace upon his death. Genesis 15 and verse 15 says, You, however, will go to your fathers in peace, and you'll be buried at a good old age. This came eventually to pass. Genesis 25 and verse 8, Abraham believed or or breathed his last rather and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. And let me tell you, folks, that's a good eulogy. That ought to be a, a eulogy that any of us would be thankful to have, that we breathe our last and we died at a good old age as an old man, an old woman, full of years. And when that happens, we'll be gathered to our people. Now, was the scripture only talking about being buried in the family tomb? I think not. The phrase gathered to his people contains the hope of a reunion with loved ones who have gone on. The same thing is said of Jacob and others in the Old Testament. Again, this is going to come into full view when we get into the New Testament. That we will know and we will be known. We will be in the presence of God, which will be the greatest treasure of heaven, but we'll also be in the presence of all who have believed, 
who have gone on before us. Then I come to this question before I close. How were all of these promises secured from the perspective of people in the Old Testament? After all, our subject tonight is the Old Testament. We're trying to get insight to lay that foundation as we move toward the New Testament. How were all these promises secured? They believed in the promise to come. They looked forward to the Deliverer, the Messiah. And now we look back at the fulfillment of it all. People in the Old Testament were saved, not by the law. They were saved, not by the religion. They were saved, not by the ceremonies. None of that was capable of saving. That was only a schoolmaster to show them their need for God's grace. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. There's never been but one way to approach God, and that's through belief. That's through casting ourselves on his mercy, understanding that only his grace is sufficient. In Romans chapter 4, it says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, well, then he's got something to boast about, but not before God. So Paul's writing and saying, look, if it was works that justified Abraham, if it was what he did that was good that justified him, if it was the law, if it was anything that justified him, then he's got something to boast in. He can brag about it. He say, look at what a good person I am. Look at what a religious person I am. Look at all the good deeds I've done. Look at the people I've associated with. But he says, for what does the scripture say? Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. And this is the heart of the whole deal. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. He goes on to say, now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is credited for righteousness. You see, salvation has always been by grace through faith. There has never been but one way to God. Now, by way of summary, let's recap where we've come from tonight. First of all, today when an unbeliever dies, he goes to a place of suffering which is not yet the final hell, but what we would refer to as Hades, or commonly to state it as hell, would not be a wrong way of saying it either, although it's not the final hell. Today, when a believer dies, he goes immediately to be in the presence of God. Paradise, place of peace, the place where the throne room of God is. And then second, The Bible begins to teach in the Old Testament that death is not the end of existence. The soul of human beings will exist forever. God imparts immortality to believers. People are not immortal by nature, but believers have an eternal inheritance awaiting them. Third, the Bible teaches that every human soul is born with an endless existence. At death... The soul is separated from the body, but the soul does not lapse into a state of unconsciousness or sleep. The soul will retain an unbroken consciousness into the presence of the Lord. 
Fourth, the Lord will come in the future. The dead will be raised. The world will be judged. And the eternal kingdom will come. And the hope of it all is that believers will experience the eternal presence of God. Don't you ever believe that the Bible is limited in what it has to say about the life that is to come? It's full of truth. And truth leads us to a place of faith. Faith leads us to a place of hope. Hope leads us to a place of confidence. And in all things, the Lord is glorified. Let's bow our heads together as we pray.